Thank you for having your Bibles. Let's turn in them to the book of 2 Thessalonians this evening, chapter 3. And we want to continue now with the second message in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. And next week, I believe, God willing, we'll finish this, and that'll be also the conclusion of the 2 Thessalonians series. Tonight, let me direct your attention to verse number 6. Our verses will run down from verse 6 through 15. And so just follow along. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat any man's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but that to give you in ourselves an example to imitate or follow. For even when we were with you, we would command you this, we would give you this commandment. If any would not, if any is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work privately and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And may God add his own blessing to this reading of his word. Let's join our hearts and pray and ask for exactly that as we continue. Father, thank you for your great kindness and love to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great reminder we had in this psalm just a few moments ago. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Dismiss from us tonight any foolish reliance upon the wisdom of men and give to us the power and liberty and freedom of the Spirit of God to listen and to proclaim the truth of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would just take all distraction from us now. We're so often plagued with this, we come with a heart that desires to hear from you and desires to worship. And here we find ourselves sometimes light years away, distracted by something that's coming up tomorrow or something after the service tonight. I pray, Father, you would just keep us from that and give us the ability to hear what you have for each of us as individuals tonight. Thank you that you understand our downsitting and our uprising. You know our thoughts afar off. You know exactly who we are, where we are, and what we need. And so I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart might be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. For I pray these things in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, in these verses tonight, we're going to be looking at the exhortation or admonition part of chapter 3. Recall, if you will, that last week when we, we, we began chapter 3, I mentioned that you have Paul uh, turning to a very pastoral type of tone in this chapter 3. This chapter begins with prayer and ends with prayer, and that is always a good thing when you have to deal with something as delicate as what he has to deal with now in this key section of the chapter. I think that's an example for us as we talked a little bit about last week, but I very much understand it as a, as a preacher, thinking about some subjects that are not as easy to deal with as others, and I can just imagine I pointed out to you last time, I think, that Paul begins this chapter with finally brothers. And that doesn't mean that in three seconds he's going to be done, but what it does mean is that he's wrapping up this letter. 
But as we look at what's here, we know that there's something that Paul has to deal with. Uh, He saved it to the last, and I certainly wouldn't want to infer from that that he put off the most difficult thing to the end, but in our human weakness, we could understand something like that, couldn't we? I'm not saying that's what Paul did, but in our human weakness, isn't it true that sometimes we just kind of shove things off that are a little bit more difficult to deal with? And anyway, regardless of any of that, it's a delicate subject, dealing with the disorderly. And so Paul is talking now to brothers in the church. I think it's very important for us to to be sure that we understand that. I think it's clear enough as we go down through the passage, but look at this. When you come to verse number 15, this uh, sort of removes any doubt. You know, who is Paul really talking here? Who are these disorderly? You know, are these uh, just, you know, unbelievers? Or who exactly are these people? Well, it's important to know that Paul doesn't regard them as unbelievers at all. They're a part of the Thessalonian church, and he regards them as brothers because he says in that final verse, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Well, these were people, however, who had disregarded Paul's clear instruction. When Paul was there, Paul sensed this problem. Paul knew that there were some people who were idle in the church. And I think that maybe we should go back and just refresh this. So turn a page, if you would, and look at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians for just a moment. And catch with me again verse number 11 where it says, And to aspire to live quietly going to mention this again, that with quietness they eat their own bread. So these thoughts are sort of anticipatory. He's already seen this. And he says, uh, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. He's going to talk about busybodies now. And then he points out, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Down in chapter 5, then we see it one more time, verse number 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. So, Paul has seen this when he was here before. Then when we read this particular chapter, Paul tells us that he instructed them about that even when he was there. So notice verse 10 in our text that we read earlier. Uh, He says here, For even when we were with you, we would. This is an interesting way of translating that. It's the Greek imperfect, but it's perfectly legitimate to translate it that way when what you're trying to say is this would go on when we were there over and over again. So on multiple occasions, as Paul sensed this being an issue, He had given polite exhortation to the church about how it should be handled, and he points out to them, I gave you this instruction when I was there. But see, folks, here's the thing. Sometimes we take the first step to deal with a problem, and sometimes it's resolved. Boy, isn't that wonderful. Don't you wish they'd all go that way? But it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes a problem lingers. And in this particular case, it's obvious that it's gotten worse, if for no other reason, because these people have persisted in what they're doing despite the fact that Paul talked to them when he was there about it and would give them exhortation. And then as he points out in this chapter, uh, he set such a flawless example for them of, of exactly what the decorum was and what the standard should be in the church. So what I would like to do tonight, I don't know that we have the particular problem here, as I, I said, I think before, of idle people. But it's important for us to find the principles that are here. And so I'd like to handle that the passage that way tonight. I'd like to try to distill for you seven principles that I think we can use, and I don't want you either just to think of church context because, and probably I'll do this a number of times during the message, but you know, as I thought about these principles, I thought, wow, you know, this really applies to your children. If you're kind of still in the, in the process of some of that, or you, you kind of look back, or you have grandchildren and you see some of these very principles, and it's wonderful how the Word of God 
addresses us, and we can take these these applications and these principles. So, first of all, if I get the thing out of my pocket, there we go. Let's talk about the first principle, which is know the facts. Now, you notice I have there chapter 3, verse 11, and that's not chapter 3, verse 6. That's kind of self-evident. So I've switched the order on this just a little bit for this first point because I think logically it helps us to look at this first. So let's drop down to verse 11 and notice something that Paul says. This really catches my attention because he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. But folks, it's really important for us to understand that hearing about something's not good enough. Hearsay is not good enough. Just because you've heard that something goes on doesn't mean that you should assume that you have the facts of the matter. In fact, it's a real problem when we don't ascertain the facts of the matter, and Paul had gone out of his way not to do that. And I'd say, man, this is not hearsay on Paul's part because he has firsthand knowledge, as I took the trouble to show you those two verses again in First Thessalonians. He has firsthand knowledge from when he was there. He saw this problem in the flesh. But then beyond that, he tells us that he was receiving reports about this. Now, this can be tricky, perhaps, except for the fact that this was ongoing and it was from people that Paul trusted layered upon the fact that he was there himself and saw the problem for himself. So in verse 11, once again, for we hear. Now, again, this is the present tense in Greek, so it emphasizes something ongoing. So we might sort of, to bring the the color of that out a little bit, we might say something like this. For we keep on hearing. I keep on hearing. I was there. I saw it. I politely exhorted you about this when I was there, not to be idle. But I keep on hearing of this problem. And... As I said to you before, the people that Paul was hearing from, people like Timothy and so forth, were people who were quite quite reliable. So Paul goes out of his way. That's the whole thing that I I want you to see in this first point, that Paul does due diligence. And what I fear is is that sometimes when we have these issues come up, we don't always do due diligence. We don't always ascertain the facts. And I think that sometimes there's a, a real responsibility that each of us has, not only in what we say, but what we listen to. And that's really important. So acting without knowing leads to a colossal mess. Now, I didn't overstate that case. And I think we all know that. We've all gotten ourselves into a jam before because we've heard something, assumed something, and then acted on that before we really ascertained whether or not that was in actuality the circumstance. Sometimes you can extricate yourself from that without too much problem by apologizing. Other times you do damage. Here's an example. I want you to see this because you don't really have to look too far in the Bible to find a really good example of this. This one takes us clear back to the Old Testament. And I'm conscious of the fact that I can't stay on any one of these points too long, but let me try to set the stage for you. You remember when they were ready to go into the Promised Land, but they were in what's called Transjordan. They were east of the Jordan River. And they had battle with Sihon, king of Og, and one of the other kings there, and they conquered that territory that was east of the Jordan River. And the, the, the children of Manasseh, the, the children of, uh, and two, the, two of the tribes, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said, you know, we've got a lot of cattle. They told Moses, we've got a lot of cattle, and this is a great place to raise cattle. Could we just take our inheritance here? And Moses, I'm sure, checked with the Lord on that and said, yeah, with one provision, and that is, you can have this, this can be your inheritance, but you pass over armed before your brothers 
the remaining nine and a half tribes, so that when they go into the land of Canaan proper and have to do battle with all these people, they're not diminished. Their military strength isn't diminished by your staying here. They readily agree to this. Well, now it's all over with. They're ready to go back. They're ready to, they have Joshua's blessing. This is in the book of Joshua. They have his blessing. They're ready to go back and take their inheritance. But they get an idea. And really their idea is, is not far-fetched at all. They're concerned. They're concerned over the fact that the Jordan is a natural barrier. They're concerned over the fact that in later generations, some of the people on the west side of the Jordan River, Israel proper, will begin to look askance. That they'll begin to say to them, well, you know, you're not, you don't really have an, the inheritance of the Lord. You're, you're, you're really not of us. So what do they do? You remember this story? They decide to build a large, this is Ken Ham on steroids. They decide to build a large replica of the ark. Uh, not, yeah, no, not the ark. The altar. They both start with A. The altar. And so they build this thing. Well, then what happens is word of this gets back to the nine and a half tribes and they mobilize. I mean, if you read the chapter, and this is what it says in that last verse, and when the, chil- the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. This is serious. But fortunately, what happens is Phinehas, the priest, selects ten men, one from each of the tribal leaders of the nine and a half tribes, and they send a delegation to find out whether or not this is really true. Thank God they did that, because this is what they're explaining to them. They get to the final, finally now we come to this, and when Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that God is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith, which is what the first conclusion they jumped to was, against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. You know, God spared them by giving them the forethought to send that delegation and check with those people and to hear firsthand directly from them exactly what was going on, why they built that altar. It saved them from a colossal mess. I think we can see that. You know, the Bible warns us about this in a verse like Proverbs 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. So, first of all, we have to know the fact. And I mentioned a moment ago, we have to be careful what we say, and sometimes it's, I think, important that we're careful what we listen to. This doesn't mean that you shut someone down immediately, someone who innocently comes up to you, but, you know, when you listen for long enough and it and it just ha- doesn't have that ring to it that sounds good, well, sometimes it's, you know, we, we talk a lot about the sin of the sins of the tongue, but I'm wondering sometimes we ought not to preach on the sins of the ear. And I, I really love this. I'm sure you've heard this before. I'm sure this isn't new, but you know the adage, think before you speak. But it's the think principle is how I like to, 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 to characterize it. You ask yourself about something you're going to listen to or something you're going to say. Is it true? That's the T of think. Is it helpful? That's the H of think. Is it inspiring? That's the I. Necessary, the N. Kind, true, helpful, inspiring, necessary, kind. That's convicting to me. 
I don't always measure up to that, but it's a great thing to check yourself with and to keep in mind. So that's our first thought. First, we have to know the facts. Now, let's hasten. Secondly, define the problem. So what exactly are we talking about here? And this is particularly important in our context in 2 Thessalonians because, see, he's going to write to the church to take care of this problem. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. Paul has ascertained the facts. Now it's really time for the people to understand what the problem is so that they can be supportive of and understand what action is necessary and why. Things are a little different today in the sense that, you know, we don't have the Apostle Paul writing us a letter. You don't have an apostle based on what his instruction is that that you don't really need to go beyond that. I mean, that's you have clear authority on something like that. But we have a congregational form of polity. I'm not saying they didn't then, but I'm simply saying that if you want people to be on board, if you're in leadership and you want people to be on board, you have to be certain that people understand. So notice this in verse number 6, what he has to say to them, because I'm going to come to my point right away. The, the gold standard in dealing with anything like this is, do we have a deliberate an ongoing disregard of biblical teaching, something that's breaching the decorum and harmony in the assembly. See, this is not about a differing opinion. This is not about a differing preference. This is not about, well, you know, I really think it should be this way, but that brother so-and-so over there, he's all the time campaigning for, well, okay, that's irritating. But it doesn't rise to this level. And so what does Paul do? First of all, He talks in verse number 6. Let's have a peek in here and see if we can't take this apart just a little bit. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. All right, now, you say, hey, you, you titled your message dealing with the disorderly, but all through here it says idle. Yeah, you're right. So this is a problem translators face. Translators have to determine what the best way is, if they're honest to the text, they have to figure out what's the best way to handle the translation of a word. The ESV translators choose to go this route. They they identify the specific problem. It's idleness, we know that. It's people who refuse to pull their own weight. It's freeloaders. And so that's how it's translated here, walking in idleness. But if you remember the King James rendering or you have the New American Standard, you're going to have disorderly. So you say to yourself, okay, what's the deal? How come some people talk about the disorderly, some people talk about the idle, what's going on? And is there a better way to approach this? Well, it depends. See, the whole thing is, if you do what the ESV did and you you plug in the specific application and the specific problem that's going on in the church, then you remove all doubt, you know, precisely what you're dealing with, it has that strength to it. If there's a weakness to it, it sort of, it sort of puts us in a position where we don't necessarily see the applicability to the pa- of the passage to problems beyond that. And, you know, if you do that with the Bible, you're in a world of hurt because you have to treat the Bible not only for what it says in the given instance, but from the legitimate principles that it teaches and applications that you can make beyond that. And this is one of the reasons that it's true that the Bible is living and powerful. How is it living? How is it that the Bible can address things that are in practice in our society today, but they never had that problem and didn't even know about that problem, that particular iteration of the problem in biblical times? It's because 
you can take and distill principles from the Bible. So for me, I, I like disorderly for the simple reason that I know exactly where Paul's coming from in the use of this term. All right, let's take a, an English example of this. If, if I talk to you about compliance, you know what that is. If I talk to you about he's not in compliance, you know what that is. Sometimes we negate the word compliance by saying non-compliance. With me so far? Okay, we do that in English. You do it in Greek, too. You can take a word, and then you can put a letter on the front of it, and you can negate it. All right, Greek has a specific word for somebody who's idle and doesn't work, and it's not this word. It's a different word. This particular word is a word that negates the idea of order. And in many contexts, I wouldn't say all, but in many contexts, this particular, the Greek verb tasso, it means to order or to arrange. In many, many contexts, it's, it's virtually borders on being a military technical term. And the person who is in non-compliance, that is to say when we negate the word and say that he's not in compliance with being orderly, is a person who breaks ranks. And if you know anything about the military, and I know because my father was a Marine, not because I served myself, so I don't want to come across the wrong way. But uh, we kind of got the flavor of that in how we were brought up. And you know what it was like to break ranks. You know it's important to maintain discipline in the military because if you don't have discipline, and it's not just the military folks, if you don't have discipline in, in, in many cases, the thing just kind of unravels on you. It falls apart. And everybody does that which is right in their own eyes. So disorderly is the idea of a person who's insubordinate. And you say, wow, that's, that sounds strong. Well, i got a question for you. Be honest, you don't have to put your hand up. But were you ever accused of that when you were in school? I see a few people smiling. There are a few honest among us. Yeah, I, I think I remember that a time or two. See, in middle school, I had a, our principal in middle school was a, was a Marine major. And then when I was in high school, I had a naval captain. I had him for two years of advanced math. I had him for algebra trig, and I had him for senior math. Oh, brother. Woo! I mean, he'd come in, and he had a, a stick. I mean, it was, a, it was just basically about a three-foot-long piece of doweling. He'd come in, and he whip that thing in the air and you'd hear it. And he always used these nautical expressions. And I can remember him saying to me on one occasion, Coleman, you're in dangerous straits. I knew what that meant. I, I knew it meant shape up real fast or something's going to happen. Hey, there was one kid that fell asleep in class one day, if you can believe that. I mean, he was asleep. Captain Holtz walked over, picked up the trash can. This is the days they were metal walked over near that kid's desk, held it about that high, and dropped it. Can you imagine that? I mean, that kid dropped, jumped about six feet when that trash can hit the floor. That's what you've got here. You've got people who are insubordinate and who are disorderly, and it sounds strong, but when you realize that Paul has, on numbers of occasions, instructed them as to exactly what they needed to do. And he says in this verse, not according to the tradition that you received from us. And I pointed out to you before, we had this word, occurring back in verse number 15 of chapter 2. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions, look, that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 
So this has apostolic authority. This is not just someone's opinion. Paul's clear authoritative teaching was there. And so beyond this, this whole idea of being insubordinate, this whole idea of having a breach of decorum, beyond this you have another thing going on, and that is that out of it comes a problem, another problem. It's not just that they're willfully continuing in disregard of what Paul has indicated maintains the decorum in the local assembly, but it, it, it morphs into something else. And this is what we have Paul having to warn about in writing to Timothy in some of the problems that were going on there at Ephesus. And he uses the word in this chapter as well. It's just we, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but he says this. Here's the problem. Besides that, they learn to be idlers. So what comes out of that? Well, they go about having better to do. They go about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So this is a problem. You know, if you like history, you find a a number of very instructive and humorous anecdotes that come from the life of Winston Churchill. And I came across one the other day that I thought fit real well here. It, It tickled me some. But it was his last year in office, and so as prime minister he was expected, he attended this particular uh, official function. And he was sitting. Behind him, a couple of rows, there were two guys. They were also sitting. They started whispering back and forth to each other, several rows back. One of them pointed up and said, that's Winston Churchill. They say he's getting senile. The other one says, they say he should step aside and leave the running of the, of the nation to more dynamic and capable men. Well, he's hearing all this. He doesn't say anything. He just continues on. And when the event was over that evening, ceremony was over, Churchill got up, he turned to the men, and he said, Gentlemen, they also say he is deaf. So it is important for us Beloved, to be careful in these areas. Now, thirdly, we have to set the right example. Can you imagine, and here's a big problem, in verses 7 through 10, there's nothing worse in the context of discipline. Think about your your kids, because if they ever caught you in this, there's nothing worse than inconsistency in the context of discipline. Paul says, you know, I labored above and beyond anything that could reasonably be considered I went the extra mile. Look at these verses. For yourselves know how we ought to, you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without praying, paying for it. I probably prayed for it too. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right. Paul certainly did, and I'll show you that in just a moment but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now, do you know, for even when we were with you, he says, we would give you this commandment that if any is not willing to work, neither let him eat. Well, so uh, he documents that with his own example. Go back a few pages to First Thessalonians once again. I'd like to show you just how explicit he is and, and just what we come to by understanding what an example that Paul was setting because he sensed this problem when he was there. So this takes us back to when he was visiting and then wrote back the first letter. And he says in chapter 2, uh, look down at verse number 9, for you remember, brothers, it's, this is all what he says in Second Thessalonians, reminiscent of this very language. 
He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. Same thing he said over in 2 Thessalonians 3. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaimed to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. And he goes on. And why is this important? Because the standard that you find in the Bible is simply what he told the Corinthians who were a carnal crew and who badgered him about this. And he said, this is my defense. You got something to say? Here's my defense. Do we not have the right? There's that word that we encountered here. Not because we don't have the right. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas, that's Peter. I don't know how the first pope had a wife, but there it is. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So he had the right, but he sacrificed that right because he was just he realized how important it was to go above and beyond, set this example for them. I made the statement a moment ago that nothing's worse in a context of discipline than inconsistency. Well, I noticed something you probably have too, and I don't want to get anybody upset. Uh, so this is just meant as a... But I, have you ever noticed, um, <laughs> all the time I was in Pennsylvania, I noticed that the state troopers, they'd fly by. They didn't necessarily fly by and have their lights on. If they had their lights on, that was another story, buddy. You better get out of the road. But they'd they'd pass you and so forth. And so one time I had the opportunity, and I I said to this guy was a a rather high-ranking gentleman, and I I came across him in a different context. It wasn't altogether the best, but I made bold, and I said, you know, I said, how come it's how come I always see you guys shooting past at ten miles over the speed limit? And his answer to me was, well, don't you think that's just a small perk that we might have? That one didn't really do it for me. Because I think I should, as a preacher, I should have that perk too. Doesn't work that way either, does it? So I have to tell you, this past week, since I already told you something about Winston Churchill, this past week... You may have seen in the news, but there was a story that Boris Johnson, who is the current prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson said they're ending all COVID restrictions on the 19th of July. Well, no matter what you think about that, that's what he said. But you could predict what came next. Predictably, he was assailed immediately by the opposition, the Labour Party, whose leader is Keir Starmer, and who immediately tweeted out, you can just... Feel the piety or see it dripping. And to throw off all restrictions at the same time, the Prime Minister is being reckless. It didn't take very long at all for someone to tweet back a picture of Starmer a couple of days before in a pub with no mask. And the person's little note with the picture in the tweet was, you want to keep masks? You didn't seem too bothered 48 hours ago. Ouch. It doesn't look good in a context of discipline to not set the appropriate example. Now, here's number four. We have to clearly articulate what will solve the problem. So look at what, what, what we've seen here and how Paul goes through all this and see how it, it logically connects because, all right, 
So Paul has given care to know the facts in presenting this to the church. He defines the problem so they know what he's talking about. He set the right example for himself. Now here's what follows next. He He's going to address these people, the, the problem ones in the church, and he's going to tell them something. Here's what you need to do to make this right. Well, aren't we also needing to do that with our children? I mean, if we are going to take them to task over inappropriate behavior and they know we're upset with them, don't we also need to be in a position to make clear to them what will satisfy us? Sometimes we get it wrong, but you know the gold standard here in this situation is the very same one that we have to have in the other situation, and that is we're not talking about preference, we're not talking about opinion, but what it takes to make it right is the clear teaching of what God's Word says in this particular instance. All right, so let's see how he frames that so that that point is clear to us. Now such persons, now, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their own work quietly and to earn their own living. That'll fix it. Just straighten up and fly right. It's what I said to you when I was there. It's what I've said to you in First Thessalonians, and it's what I'm saying to you now. And it'll that'll restore the decorum and harmony in the assembly. So we need to clearly articulate what will solve the problem. I like this point. I could stay here all night, but don't worry. You're going to go home and so am I. But be patient. It takes time. If there were ever a lesson to learn in parenting, and I'm not saying I got it down. I'm just saying I know it's true. You know, you, you, you talk to your kids and you, you give them this profound explanation. Anyone should be able to understand that. <laughs> That'd be nice. Doesn't always work that way, does it? I know one thing. Your kids can wear you down. Hello? <laughs> I mean, they can wear you down. And so can this type, these types of situations. And it's very easy to become discouraged in them. Problem solving isn't easy. And you can become very discouraged. And if you're not careful, you can... You can dip your colors. In some cases, maybe that's appropriate, but in other cases, it really isn't. Because you know what? You and I are not at liberty to compromise God's Word. If it's a preference or something else, okay. But when you have clear teaching of Scripture, we're not really at liberty to compromise what it takes to solve the problem. We have to tell our children, we have to tell others, if we have that kind of a context, what it's going to take to solve it. But... It'd be wonderful if that just all of a sudden happened overnight. doesn't always work out that way. These things can wear you down. But, you know, the Bible and practical common experience teach us that the fruit of discipline does not always bear immediate fruit. There are some verses. The writer to the Hebrews puts it this way, For the moment... While you're doing it, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's the part that tempts you to avoid it or gets you down. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Or Paul says it this way to the Galatians, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Folks, we must not give up. And that's the easiest thing to do because discouragement is one of the most potent tools in the devil's toolbox. So that's our fifth thought.
Let's look at the sixth one. Don't be afraid to take decisive action. Why is that? Because if you ignore a problem, you know what you can bet on? I'm not saying you should bet. But you know what you can bet on? It will grow. They don't just go away. I mean, once in a rare while, if it's just that kind of a... But for the most part, it's a general principle of truth that a problem ignored is a problem that's growing. So, I ask you to look no further than our national debt. And we've developed sort of an expression for that and other problems that we experience on a regular basis that are also frustrating to us when people kick the can. Especially when we have enough common sense to know that we're not allowed to do that in our own personal finances or home, but you can't do that because if you ignore a problem... now. This is kind of interesting. I didn't put these verses on the screen, but do you know, twice over, Paul says this to people in different churches. He says to the Corinthians, which is a a relevant parallel passage because it also is dealing with this type of problem in church affairs, but he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That's something you ought to know. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He also repeated that in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9. Same exact thing. A problem ignored is a problem that's growing. But you say it's unpleasant, it's difficult. How many times as a parent did you face that? You didn't really want to have to go there and deal with that situation with your kids because it's not always pleasant to do that. So here's something that will steal us. Here's something that will help us. Here's something that will give us backbone and courage when in our human weakness we'd rather just be somewhere else and not have to deal with these types of things. There is biblical authority for decisive action and it derives proximately, that is nearer at hand, it derives from apostolic teaching which is these verses we've already looked at, the clear tradition that Paul, what he taught them, chapter 2 verse 15, chapter 3 verse 6 that we've already looked at and ultimately from the Lord Jesus. Now watch this because Twice he mentions the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Also, you'll notice this one in uh, later in the uh, chapter. Verse 12, he says it again. Uh, now, such persons we command and encourage in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is, the, this is what's so precious and so important about knowing that you're You've got what God has to say about a matter because if you've got what God has to say about a matter, then you have God's authority. And that, that's what's so important. It's, you know, when we run off half cocked and don't know what we're doing and make a mess, well, just look in the mirror to identify the problem. And we've all done this, but if we have God's backing, that's a different story altogether. We must be willing to follow through well, here you have it, uh, this same thought we were looking at that Paul says it there as well in that 1 Corinthians 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, so there's the authority point again, but we have to, our kids need to know this, and it's appropriate in other contexts too. People have to know that you're willing to follow through. In this case, what is the follow-through? Verses 14 and 15 Tell us what that is. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person 
and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as a brother or as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So here's the thing. If people know you're all hat and no cattle, don't expect a lot of respect from them. They have to know that by God's grace and in clear conformity with the teaching of Scripture, you will follow through. Let's We're about done on time here, but let's go to the last thought here. Remember that the goal is restoration. It is not appropriate for us to pursue discipline for what we perceive as the getting even part of it or the revenge part of it. That's never what's going on here because if you look at what Paul is saying in this, discipline is never an end in itself. The action is designed to produce shame. Um, he says, take note. This is, this is, this word has a little color to it in the original. Not to take note, but the other one. That he may be ashamed. And it literally means a turning in. And why is it that you bring to bear the arsenal of biblical truth when you're dealing with someone because that's what the Spirit of God promises to use. And what the Spirit of God then does is to convict the heart. That's the turning in. That's the proper introspection to produce conviction, which is what we're after because then this will lead to what is really our goal in the discipline because discipline is never an end in itself. Punishment is never an end in itself. It's not to be harsh, it's to be healthy. And so we do these things hoping to resecure our relationship with this brother, to restore the decorum and harmony that has been breached by this willful disregard of the biblical standard of conduct in the church. Now, I can't prove this, but I'm going to say one thing real quickly in closing. I know we've talked all about this, and it's difficult because sometimes you say, what in the world was going on in that church? The trouble is we don't specifically know. But I'll let you think about something. A lot of people have have pondered if this is the problem. We can't prove it, so I want to be abundantly plain with that. We can't prove it. But, you know, there was a lot of misunderstanding, even some wrong teaching that we saw in chapter 2 that went on in that church with regard to eschatology, that is, future things, the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. You know, we have that still going on. Do you remember May 21, 2011? A few people nodding your head. That's when Harold Camping said the rapture is going to happen. A week before that, I preached a message right on Sunday morning from the pulpit of our church, why the rapture will not occur on May 21. You know, God's just ornery enough that he'll change it if he has to. That guy isn't going to be right. Because God said, already said in His Word, of that day and of that hour, no man knows. And, but Harold Camping, I mean, did you, do you remember seeing this? I can't speak for the Greenville area because I wasn't here, but all across Pennsylvania in different markets, these billboards, you know how much it costs to put up a billboard along a well-traveled road? Talking about this, the rapture is going to occur and all this kind of stuff. And if you, if you looked at videos and different things about this, there were people who were leaving their jobs. There were people who were doing all kinds of things because they felt that they had to devote themselves. Well, you know, if you have a situation in the church at Thessalonica where you have the people that are just steadfast in their determination, wow, you know, we could be, the Lord could be coming or or we could be in the day of the Lord. And they quit their jobs. 
You can't, t- you can't tell them anything because they know that, I mean, you can't convince them otherwise. And the first thing you know, they're going around and talking to other people and, hey, did you know this? Did you know this? And the first thing you know, you got a problem. Well, I can't prove that's it, but you know, that, that at least would put a face on it, wouldn't it? That would help us to understand why it was that you had these people who were doing that in the church. But folks, here's where we're going to end tonight. Anywhere you go that people are a part of things, <laughs> sooner or later there will be problems. It's just reality. It's just life. We've already seen there are a lot of mistakes you can make and something turns ugly. Why I give you these principles tonight, whether it's parenting or any other context, whether it's me or you, by God's grace, if we follow what God has to say in dealing with these situations, at least there's cover. You know that God's going to take care of you. You have the opportunity to see something out of which it is some unpleasantness attached become a blessing. You have the opportunity to secure God's blessing and you have the opportunity to avoid ugliness. And God knows we see too much of that in our churches. Father, deliver us from evil. We know that it's on every hand and we know the messes that we tend to make ourselves by not following your prescription, not being biblically literate enough, not being patient enough, not being willing to wait upon you. I pray that you will just help us, Lord. It's never easy to be involved in these types of things. Our children come before us as a ready example of this. We want to do right. We don't want to mess up, but we know we're in over our heads. Please help us to understand your word and to follow its precepts. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.